The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, we come this morning mindful of how your kingdom is going forth here in Green Bay and throughout the world. And yet, Lord, we also come confessing how lethargic we are so often to promote that mission. And so, God, pray that you would work in our hearts this day. Show us the greatness of the salvation, the greatness of your plan of redemption. And Lord, may we follow in this stream, this stream of making all things new, that we might be a part of your good plan of redeeming all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're over the age of five on September 11th, 2001, it's probably a day that is burned into your memory. I remember for me, I was sitting at my duplex in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, Trish and I had been married for about six months. And I remember watching the first plane hit the Twin Towers and sitting there and wondering what on earth is going on. I was actually waiting for my boss to come. He was coming to my duplex so that we could have a meeting. And he arrives, and after he arrives, shortly after a second plane crashes into the other tower. And he looks at me and he says, this is war. And I thought, no, no, it must be some mistake. I'm not sure what's going on. But as the reality of what happened started to set in, all of these emotions started springing to the surface. And I think some of those are just as memorable as the event itself. I remember feeling great sadness because of all the lives that were lost. I remember feeling anger at those who would do such evil atrocities. Well, as the week went by, um, I gathered with a group of other Christians and we started talking and thinking about what in the world was happening. And, and the preacher got up and, and he shared some great truths to comfort us. And then we circled up in this large group to pray. And we started praying and people started praying for very appropriate things. They started praying for God to comfort those who had lost loved ones. They were praying that God would find out for us who did this atrocity, that justice would be brought. And then there was a girl who prayed a prayer, and I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. She prayed, dear Lord, would you please save Saddam Hussein? And I thought to myself, I'm not sure I like that prayer. Maybe you don't like that prayer. And throughout that week, her prayer continued to gnaw at me. And I continued to realize that I had put God in this box. That Saddam Hussein certainly could not have been a part of God's plan of salvation. That he would certainly not bring it to a man such as that. He was enemy number one of the United States. He was in the wrong part of the world. He was a part of the wrong religion. So why would this girl pray for Saddam Hussein to be saved? In today's passage, God is going to disassemble the box that Peter has put him in with a very similar circumstance. If you would please open up to Acts chapter 10. 
Uh, It's page 918 in the Red Bible, which we now have in the seats in front of you. So if you don't have one, please feel free to grab one. Uh, It's also page 1193 in the Children's Bible. Now, I know that we started on a very serious topic, and you may look at the title, and it may be a little bit distracting and maybe even a bit appetizing to you. Um, I promise we'll get to why I titled the sermon Bacon Potluck. Uh, But if you could focus until that time, I would appreciate that. Um, What I want to look at here from Acts chapter 10 is really four facets of salvation that God is showing us through this story of Peter and Cornelius. And my prayer is that as we look through these four facets of salvation, that God would stretch our understanding of his greatness and the grandeur of the global salvation that he is bringing to this world. And so I want to look at these four facets of salvation. I will look at the necessity of salvation. I will look at the inclusivity of salvation. I want to look at the exclusivity of salvation. And I want to look at the productivity of salvation. So let's start with the necessity of salvation. Look with me, Acts 10 verse 1 through verse 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa. And bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called to his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. In this passage, we are introduced to a man named Cornelius, and we are given a fairly vivid image, a vivid portrait of who this man Cornelius is. The first thing we learn about Cornelius is that Cornelius was from Caesarea. Caesarea, you can see on the map up here, um, is way up north here, and Caesarea Uh, was at one time a small port city, uh, but the Roman government had come into it and had made it a modern city and a powerful city. Um, It was a city that had many luxuries attached to it. For example, it had an amphitheater where they watched horse races. It also had a palace that was built out on a peninsula. It had raised aqueducts for running water. And so Caesarea was a very luxurious place to live. And Cornelius was able to enjoy the benefits of living in this city. The second thing we learn about Cornelius is that Cornelius is a centurion. A centurion is a military phrase to describe someone that is in charge of a unit of a hundred men. And so Cornelius was very powerful and very influential. Uh, Cornelius also would have been very well paid. It's been told to us that the centurion sometimes earned as much as five times as much as what a normal soldier would make. And so he was very rich. The third thing we read about Cornelius in verse 2 is that Cornelius was a devoutly religious and God-fearing man. Not only this, but we read that his whole household followed his lead on this. We read of how 
Cornelius gave generously to people, how he gave to the poor and the needy, how he prayed continually to God, which means Cornelius did not just talk the talk, but Cornelius walked the walk. Cornelius' devotion to God is further confirmed down in verse 22 when it says that Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So in summary, what we learn about this man Cornelius is that Cornelius was living a good life. Cornelius was living a life of luxury in modern Caesarea with plenty of money to burn. Cornelius was living a life of power, being the commander of 100 men and holding the title of centurion. Cornelius even lived a devoted life. He was a God-fearer that gave to the poor and prayed to God regularly. When we consider who this man Cornelius is, we may be tempted to think that this man Cornelius has it all figured out. But as we read on, we see that this is not the case. If we peek into the next chapter, if we go to chapter 11, verse 13, Peter is retelling the story of his encounter with Cornelius to the Jews in Jerusalem. And we read this, verse 13 of chapter 11. And he, Cornelius, told us, Peter and his company, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. You see, although Cornelius was a God-fearer, even though he was devoted in his faith and lived a life of prayer and generosity, even though Cornelius was a good man, even a great man, Cornelius was not a saved man. That's the whole reason Peter came, was to tell Cornelius how he might be saved. The reason why I wanted to paint this portrait of Cornelius is because I think this is a portrait of many people in the Green Bay area. There are many people that are devout in their religion, many people that fear God to a certain extent, many people that pray. There are many people that give to the poor. There are many people that seem to have it all together, but are unsaved people. You know, I think we so often forget that everybody needs Jesus. Right now, I'm walking through uh, four, four little studies that share the basics of the faith with a friend. And my friend would, would describe himself as an agnostic, which means he believed there's a God, but, but we can't really know him. And as we're talking through these four studies and the four fundamentals of our faith, we talk about sin and what it looks like. And as we're talking about our lives, one thing that is very apparent to me is this man is a very good man. I mean, the way that he loves his wife, the way that he cares for his wife, the way that he is devoted to his wife, the way that he cherishes his children, the way that he loves his parents. I mean, it is a a life that puts much of my own desires to shame. And so I'm looking at this guy. In many ways, I'm thinking, this guy's a better guy than I am. And so I'm sitting there saying, maybe he doesn't need Jesus. But this passage is a reminder to us you know, you may have Cornelius's in your life. You may have a father or a coworker or a neighbor that you look at and you say, how could I share Jesus with them? They're better than I am. You ever have that thought? But what this is a reminder of is that noble people, honorable people, good people still need Jesus. They still need the good news of salvation. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, 
We must not suppose that if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. You know, we must not just reserve the gospel, the good news of the salvation for the down and out, but it is also for the up and coming. It is for the rich, for the happy, for the comfortable. You know, I think in the church we forget this. I mean, if you think about it, when we take mission trips, where do we take mission trips to? We take mission trips to impoverished areas, right? We go to inner city. We go to, to impoverished areas of third world countries. I mean, I don't know if I've ever heard of a mission trip going to Beverly Hills or a rich area of the country, right? We don't hear of that because I think we forget that everybody needs Jesus, And so this summer, and this was part of the annual meeting too, again, go listen to if you haven't heard it, but we're reversing that trend this summer. We're actually, we're not going on a mission trip to an impoverished area. We are not sending people away on a mission trip to an impoverished area. Instead, our target are comfortable people, happy people, rich people, even happy people. Our mission trip this summer is to Green Bay. Our mission trip is to the community that God has put us in. Our goal is to use this building as a way to reach out to the community with the good news of Jesus Christ. And one of the major ways we're doing this, we're going to have many ways we're doing this, but one way is through Vacation Bible School. We set this audacious goal of having 100 kids a part of our Vacation Bible School and 40 of them being not from Jacob's Well Church. And the reason that we're doing this is because we believe the gospel is not just for the impoverished. The gospel is for everybody. And so Cornelius is this great reminder to us that of no matter how good a person looks or how happy they look or how set their life looks, they still need to hear the good news of salvation. The second aspect of salvation I want to point out here is the inclusivity of salvation. It means it's including, it's, it's inviting. Verse 7 again. When the angel who spoke to Cornelius had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city of Joppa, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being lit down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again in second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. To give you a little bit of context, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 11, God gives a command of dietary laws to his people. That there are certain animals that they are not to eat that it is deemed unclean. Animals like camels and badgers and rabbits and pigs and anything in the water that does not have fins they cannot eat. They are unclean. 
And the list goes on and on and on of the things that they cannot eat. And then at the end of this chapter in Leviticus 11, God gives the reason why they cannot eat these animals. And what he says is he says, For I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. And so the question is, how does this connect? How does it connect that they are supposed to only eat certain types of foods in the Old Testament, and it's related to the fact that God has brought them out of Egypt to serve and worship him? Well, you see, one of the things that was very customary in the Old Testament, and even today, is when you have somebody over for a meal, that you have a lot of socialization, that you talk a lot, that you share a lot. And what God was doing in this approach of making certain foods unclean is he was protecting his people. He knows that his people had a propensity to follow after other gods. And so he was creating a way to separate his people in a way to make them distinct, to make them unique, to keep them from hearing these other religions in such a way that they would be influenced and chase after other gods, which as you may know, they did anyways. But he was making them distinct to protect them from falling into idol worship. What else he was doing is he was actually trying to make them unique so that the the countries of the world would see them, would see how blessed they are and say, whose God is that? Whose God is it that blesses those people that have those weird dietary restrictions and wear those funny tassels and things like that? And so God institutes these dietary laws to protect his people and to show forth the gospel. But now everything is changing. Now God is calling unclean Gentiles like Cornelius and his household and friends to salvation in Jesus Christ. If you don't know what a Gentile is, a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. Most of us are Gentiles. And the good news of this story, the good news of the gospel of redemption is that it flows out not just to the Jews, but to Gentiles like us as well. You know, every year we have our annual Christmas bacon potluck. If, if you're new here, this may be new to you. You may not have known. Maybe, maybe you started attending here because of the Christmas bacon potluck. I completely understand. Um, it actually started out as a joke. Uh, there was one Sunday where people were coming back from fellowship. And I said, hey, just to remind you, um, you know, we have the, the Christmas potluck in two weeks. And people are filtering in. And I said, maybe you should make it a bacon potluck. And like, that's the most amens I've ever heard in a Presbyterian congregation. So we decided we're going to make it a bacon potluck. And so it's stuck ever since then. And while it started out as a joke, there's actually some reasonable significance of it towards Christmas. You see, pigs were dirty. They were not clean. They were not able to be eaten. But with the coming of Jesus Christ and the gospel going out, God has declared all these foods clean to show that the good news of the gospel is going out to Gentiles. Gentiles like you, Gentiles like me. And so as you eat a piece of bacon, first you can say, thank you, Jesus, for making bacon. Amen. Amen. But then you can say, thank you, Jesus, for bringing the gospel to me. You see, these dietary restrictions were one way that God used to keep, keep the people of God unique and separate from the pagans of the world. But now he was bringing down those regulations to encourage community between the Jews and the Gentiles that they might know the good news of Jesus Christ. No longer is God's people the Jewish Israel nation. Now God is creating a new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it is called 
the church. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so let me just briefly revisit the story that we have heard so far. In the previous chapters, and you can look again on the map, what you see is that God is slowly bringing Peter out of Jerusalem, out of Jewish territory. First, he is brought to Lydda where he heals a paralytic. The word spreads throughout Lydda and throughout Sharon. People are starting to turn to the Lord. And then in Joppa, there is a woman named Dorcas or Tabitha. Tabitha is probably the preferred name. And um, and Tabitha dies, and so they send to Lydda to get Peter to come. And so Peter comes to Joppa, and he raises uh, Dorcas from the dead, and she's alive. And so there's Peter in Joppa. Now, the interesting thing about Joppa is, if you know your Old Testament, there's a guy named Jonah. And Jonah was given a calling to go to the Gentiles, to go to the Ninevites, to share about the Lord, that they might repent and believe. But Jonah didn't want this. And so from Joppa, uh, Jonah set out in rebellion against God. God towards another part of the world. And so here it is in Joppa, and God is calling a new man. He's calling Peter to go to the Gentiles to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And the question is, is he going to do what Jonah did, or is he going to respond in obedience? Verse 23. So he, Peter, invited them, these Gentiles, into be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I mean, you can see here that, can you see the division between the people? The Jews, which Peter is, were not even allowed to associate with these Gentiles until now when God declares all foods clean and shows that the gospel is for the Gentiles. He goes on, he says, But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked him why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, which is around noon. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your, arms have been, your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. 
Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know, in this opening speech by Peter, in the opening lines of Peter's presentation of the good news of Christ, we see that Christianity is simultaneously the most inclusive religion and the most exclusive religion. Christianity is inclusive in that it is not bound to a certain nationality or geography or ethnicity. You see, one of the points of debate in the early church was whether or not Gentiles needed to become Jews before they became Christians. You see, with so many religions, their religiosity is connected to their ethnicity. And so they wear certain clothing or they have certain markings on their body. And you can designate, okay, they belong to this religion. And for you to become a part of that religion, you not only have to, to understand what they believe and to believe it yourself, but you actually have to become part of the culture that it came from. You can actually see here, there's a, uh, there's a map up here. And this is from mapsofworld.com, just so I'm not plagiarizing. You can see it right there. And this is a distribution of the world religions. And what is so interesting, you can see how ethnic-centric these religions are. Islam is represented there in green, and you can see it's mostly in the Middle East. Hindu is represented in orange, and it's in India. Buddhism and Taoism is in brown and purple, and it's mostly located in Asia. Judaism is red, which is located, you probably can't see it, but it's located in Israel. But Christianity is in tan. And you can see that it has crossed all sorts of ethnic boundaries. And the reason it's crossed all sorts of ethnic boundaries is because you are not called to an ethnicity. You are called to a savior. And so Christianity is the most inclusive religion in that it invites all to come and be a part not changing your nationality, but infiltrating your nationality. You know, Sean and Becca Hill, who are actually here today, they came up a few weeks ago to talk about their calling to go to Togo, Africa, and to share the good news of the gospel. And if you're here, you may remember the clothing that they wore. It was clothing that you would not see on a street here in Green Bay. But it was clothing that was representative of those that live in Togo. You see, God does not call us to go in and change culture, he goes in to call us to share the good news of Christ, that culture might be transformed, not changed completely, but transformed with the good news of the gospel. And so friends, we should celebrate our ethnicity. If you are American or whatever ethnicity you are, we should celebrate it, but not at the exclusion of the rest of the world. You see, God is not just for America. God is for every tribe tongue, and nation. And so we should care about Mexicans and celebrate the redeeming parts of Mexican culture. We should celebrate Russia and the redeeming parts of the Russian culture. We should celebrate Iran and the redeeming parts of the Iranian culture because God loves every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And his desire is that they would come unto him. Jesus is not a tribal deity. Jesus is Lord over all, and he loves and cares and pursues every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And so you can see, in some ways, Christianity is the most inclusive religion, but it is also the most exclusive religion. Verse 34, 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so it's inclusive because it welcomes people from every nation, but it's exclusive because it is only for those who fear him and does what is right. That those who fear him and do what is right are acceptable to him. Now, what does it mean to fear him and to do right? Is this saying that any person from any religion, as long as they fear God and they're a moralistic person and they do right things, that they're going to be accepted by God, that they're going to be saved? Well, certainly not because this is who Cornelius was, right? Cornelius was a man who feared God. He did what was right. He gave to the poor. He prayed and yet he was not a saved man. And so what does it mean for a man like Cornelius or for you or for me to fear God and to do what is right? Well, Peter answers that as we read on. Verse 36 says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace, Through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, not just Jews, Gentiles. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39 And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then Peter cuts the chase. He says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Again, verse 35 says that those who are acceptable to God, those who have peace with God, are those who fear him and does what is right. And so what does it mean to fear God and to do what is right? Well, looking at this passage, we first see what it means to fear him. Look at verse 42. It says, And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. You know, we talk frequently about the love of Jesus the kindness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, which is good and appropriate, and we should, but we so often lose sight of the judgment of Jesus. For Jesus was appointed by the Father to judge the living and the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.10 puts it this way. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now notice, it does not say, if you believe this, this is true. It's saying, this is going to happen, whether you believe it or not. All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, do you see the connection there? I just need to point this out really quick. It says we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and therefore we fear the Lord, right? Because who we are is going to be laid bare before the one who's judging us. And that's what he says here. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Friends, these are terrifying words. You may be fooling your friends with who you are. You may be fooling your family with who you are. You may even be fooling yourself with who you are, but you cannot fool God. You will be laid bare before God when you sit before his judgment throne. Romans 2.16 says that God will judge the secrets of men in Jesus Christ. What a terrifying thought, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if, if, I, if we brought out your secrets up here and had you start spilling it and you couldn't control it and you were telling the truth, how terrifying would that be? And yet it is before the creator of the universe, the judge of all things. And so if this is true, which God tells us it is, that you will stand before God, that your sins will be laid bare, that your secrets will be open to him and knowing of him, and he will judge you according to that, it must cause, cause us to fear the Lord. But it continues, not only do we fear the Lord, we must do what is right. And what is it to do what is right? Is it simply to give alms and to pray? No, it can't just be that because that's what Cornelius did. Verse 43 tells us that to believe in Christ and to receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, to believe in Christ doesn't just mean to believe that he was a historical figure, that he actually lived, that he actually did miracles. Cornelius believed that. Jesus' opponents believe that. But it means to believe what is contained there in verse 39. Peter says, and we were witnesses of all that he did both in country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then he says this, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. You know, it's so interesting that he does not use the word cross. He's talking to Roman soldiers. They'd be familiar with the word cross because that's how they execute people, was on crosses. But he said they hung him on a tree. And you think, why did he use that phrase, tree? Well, it's because he is hearkening back to a chapter, in, to a verse in Deuteronomy 21, which tells us that cursed by God is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus was hung on a tree because Jesus was cursed by God. And Jesus was cursed by God because he was taking what our sins deserve. Galatians 3 explains this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is, is death and the wrath of God by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so let me ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus hung on a tree for you? Do you believe that Jesus took your curse upon himself? That he suffered the wrath you deserve, the death that you deserve. You see, the glorious good news of Jesus is that Jesus is both your judge, but also your justifier. Let me explain how that works. Imagine, imagine you were caught, right? Imagine you're caught stealing something, or maybe you're caught cheating on your taxes or whatever it might be. Imagine that your secret hidden sin was exposed and you were arrested and you were taken to trial. And the judge looks at all the evidence that is before him, and it is extremely obvious that you are guilty. And so the judge looks at you, and he says, you must pay $1 million or go to jail for the rest of your life. 
And you're thinking, I don't have a million dollars. I don't even have enough friends that could accumulate a million dollars to do this. And so he slams the gavel and the verdict is pronounced, you are guilty. And the wages of your sin are announced, a million dollars or the rest of your life in prison. And as the weight of that penalty overwhelms you, you see the judge arise, take off his, what's it called? Cloak. Get, come down, pull out his checkbook, write a million dollars on your behalf and give it to the court to set you free. You see, that judge was both judge and justifier because although you endured the penalty for your sin, he paid it on your behalf. In the same way, Christ is just. He must judge every sin. Did you know every single sin will be paid for? Every single sin on the face of the earth, justice will be had on it. The question isn't if sin will be punished. The question is who will take the punishment for that sin? And it will either be you or it will be Jesus, who is both judge but also justifier upon the cross. The good news doesn't stop there. It continues in verse 40. It says, But God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to those who have been chosen by God as witnesses. You see, Christ not only died for your sin, he rose to give you newness of life. And all of us, all who call on the name of Jesus, all of, all of us who fear him, as judge and trust him as our justifier will be saved. You know, Peter said this earlier in Acts chapter 4. He pointed to how exclusive Christianity is. He said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yes, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in that it welcomes all sorts of ethnicities, every ethnicity, but it's also the most exclusive because it only belongs to those who fear Christ and trust in him as their justifier. The final point, I'm going to go quickly through it because we're running out of time, is the productivity of salvation. This is why I stick to three-point sermons because I run out of time, okay? Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, no altar call needed, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, let me give you just a brief overview of this point. So Peter is going to go back to Jerusalem and he's going to be reprimanded by the believing Jews for being with Gentiles, for being with unclean people. And he says, but here's what happened. I went there and I started preaching and the same thing happened to them, happened to us. On Pentecost, we started to speak in tongues. They hear the word of, of the good news of the gospel and they start speaking in tongues. And so who am I to limit God? God breaks out of my box. He shares, he, he, he reaches out to the Gentiles. He brings the Holy Spirit into the Gentiles. And then they all turn and they start praising God. You see, what is so uh, important here, what we see is that the reason why God, and there's probably more than one reason, but one of the reasons why God had these Gentiles start speaking in tongues was because they needed immediate evidence that they were saved. Because the Jews did not believe that the good news of the gospel could go out to Gentiles. And so their speaking in tongues was immediate and obvious fruit that the Holy Spirit was working inside of them. Now, for most of us, 
The work of the Spirit is much more subtle in the fruit of the Spirit, and yet there is still evidence to be had. And so my question for you is, do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you see evidence? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Are you bearing those in more and more quantities? Not are you sinless, but do you see an outside force at work within you? Because that is evidence of our salvation. And if you do not see that salvation, if you do not see that fruit, then maybe you are simply a Cornelius. Maybe you are a God-fearer, but you need to trust in Christ for your salvation, who is both judge and justifier. Let me end with this story real quick. Uh, Church planting is kind of uh, in vogue in the church community and in our denomination. Our denomination plants about one church a week throughout the United States and God has been doing really cool things. And so we have these gatherings um, of church planters. And one of the guys who was aspiring to be a church planter got up to share his story. Uh, he was an Indian guy, uh, not Native America, but he was actually from India. And he told the story about how one day uh, a missionary had come when they lived in India and put a track on their doorstep or mailbox or whatever it might be. And the mom went out and she grabbed the track and she looked at it. She saw what it was and she threw it in the trash. Well, his dad walked by the trash. He grabbed this track, pulled it out of the trash can, read it, and became born again. It's an amazing story. But as a result of this, he then led his family to faith in Christ. And now here was his son standing before him, before us, called to be a minister of the gospel, called to go out and proclaim the necessity of salvation for the good and for the bad, for the religious and for the irreligious, to proclaim the inclusivity of salvation. That's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. The exclusivity of salvation that is for only those who trust in Jesus Christ and to demonstrate the productivity of salvation, that it never leaves each life unchanged. And so friends, as we look, as we're about to sing, we have a task unfinished to share the good news of the gospel with every people, good people, bad people, American people, Mexican people, all people, because it is the good news and Christ is Lord over all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the salvation that you have given to us Gentiles, that we can have a relationship with you and be at peace with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.